0: Good morning, church. Good to see you. Welcome to springtime. We're enjoying it. Thanks for uh, bringing your Bibles with you this morning. We conclude this series on Transform uh, this morning. We're going to look at a very, very famous passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is the story of David Goliath. It it happened about 3,000 years ago. And uh, just to give you some geography, uh, Israel, the nation of Israel geographically, has a mountain range on the east side of this nation. Uh, this is where the more famous cities of Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Hebron actually uh, sit. And then on the, on the, uh, the west coast of, of, of Israel, it borders the Mediterranean Sea, so it's a coastal plain uh, on that part. Tel Aviv, the current city, uh, resides there. And in between these coastal plains and the mountain ranges are these series of valleys. It's, uh, it's called the Shefela and historically, when people would try to conquer Israel, if they came by the, by the way of the sea, they had to come up through these valleys in order to go up the mountains to attack. And 3,000 years ago, King Saul of Israel learned that this Philistine army was coming to try to overthrow them. And the Philistines and the Israelites were arch enemies in the day. The Philistines were a seafaring people who originated from the island of Crete. And so they had made their way Israel found out about it and so they met each other in a in a place in the Shefella called the Valley of Elah. Israel's army put itself on the ridge on the north side of this valley, and the Philistines were on the south ridge, and they were just standing there looking at each other. And it was a standoff because you you couldn't attack the other's army unless you went down to the valley and then up the hill, which put you at a tactical disadvantage. And so they were just there in a stalemate. And finally, as was occasionally the custom in that day, a single warrior was produced from the Philistines. And this guy, you'll remember, was a giant, Goliath. And he taunted Israel. And the deal was each, each army would send out a warrior. And whichever warrior, it was, it was winner take all. And so we had this stalemate. I want to read for us the beginning of this uh, story of this, st- this uh, interesting stalemate, 1 Samuel chapter 17. I hope you'll read this whole chapter uh, when you get a chance to do so on your own. It is a fabulous story, and I think there is much for us to learn from it. Today we want to talk about facing giants in your life and work and with regard to vocational health. So as you're able, would you please stand to hear these important words? I'll begin reading at verse 3. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. And a champion named Goliath, who was from Goth, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Now, depending on how you translate these measurements, this guy was somewhere between seven and a half and nine feet tall. He's a, he's a big fellow. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, so his, his, uh, his armor was about 125 pounds. That's what he was wearing. On his legs, he wore bronze shin guards, a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. So his spear, uh, the beam of his spear was about the thickness of a man's wrist, and the head of the spear weighed about 20 pounds. So just carrying the thing would would be, uh, you know, a test. Uh, let me put it this way. If he threw it at you and he hit you, it would probably leave a mark. <laughs> you know, uh, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified now may God inspire this uh, story in our hearts today you may be seated thanks so much let me just remind you today that your ability to dream your ability to dream is a God-given gift human beings are unique in all of creation because we have this unusual capacity part of our capacity is that we can reminisce about what's happened to us in the past we call that memory and another amazing capacity that we have as human beings is that we also have the ability to imagine the future to envision it to dream about it to actually make plans this is different than all the rest of the animal kingdom I mean I mean your your house cat doesn't get up in the morning go you know next week I'm you know I'm gonna change my career yeah it just doesn't So, so we have this amazing capacity and think about this everything Everything that exists in the world that human beings have touched are the result of someone's dream. Everything. Every piece of art you've ever seen. Every business that's been built. Every type of architecture that's been produced. Every product. Everything that happens through human beings is the result of someone thinking about it. Dreaming about it. Envisioning it. Napoleon said this about about dreams. He said, "Imagination rules the world." I, Albert Einstein said it this way: "Imagination is more important than knowledge." That's a strong statement, isn't it? And I've discovered, just through life and observation, that for every person, every one person who actually chases after their dream and and goes for it and overcomes all the barriers. Uh, that that are standing in our way and they actually pursue their sense of God's call and destiny in their lives that they they see before them something more something bigger something better something more influential something that will honor God in profound ways When, when for every person that I see really chase after that I observe nine people or so who just get stuck and they're afraid to take the risks necessary to get them to that place. And so I want to just challenge us this morning. I want to, I want, to I want us to consider that there are giants in our path, that there are obstacles to our dreams. And sometimes those are those are spiritual obstacles, sometimes those are health-related issues, sometimes they're emotional in nature, relational in nature. Sometimes it has to do has to do with, with all kinds of these issues that we've been talking about in this series. And so, what I want to do today is consider this story of David Goliath and see how David managed this giant in his life. And I think it will be helpful to us in overcoming the the barriers and obstacles that will keep us from pursuing our dreams. Now, on your outline, you'll see uh, the first thing there lessons from David and Goliath. Let me just talk about that a little bit. You can write down whatever you want. But what we've done uh, typically, historically, with this story is we've used it as a metaphor. Uh, for improbable victories. It is like one in a million shot, right? The, the long shot victory. Dave, little David against this big Goliath. And so we, we've kind of assumed it to be that because after all, David was a kid. We don't know how old he was, maybe 12, 13 years old, something like that. And so he's just a boy, just coming into adolescence. And, and he's average in size. He's normal that way. And contrasted with David and his seeming smallness and insignificance is this Goliath who's all decked out. He's been a warrior all of his life. And we know that David, all that David has is a sling. Now, we might just grab a hold of that for a moment and and talk about it. Uh, When we think about slingshots in our culture, we think about those little Y-shaped pieces of wood, you know, with the rubber on them and and you're shooting peas, we don't imagine that slingshots are deadly weapons I mean if we thought that uh, then most most parents would be dead by now right so we don't think of them as lethal weapons but just like anything else in our world there are there are, there are guys and gals who like to study these things and so as it turns out they there are some slingshot nerds uh, in in the scientific community who've actually studied these things and apparently these slingshots used uh, in ancient Israel were very effective weapons we have, uh, we have uh, discovered from these guys that when, when someone becomes adept at using one of these slingshots that you can actually project a rock at about 80 or 90 miles an hour. And another thing that's been discovered is that the, the rocks in the, in the valley of Elah actually are con- consisting of a, of, a, of, a, of a material called barium sulfate which is a very heavy and condensed compressed rock. It's, it's, it's very heavy. And so they've actually studied the ballistic capacity of a barium sulfate rock slung from one of these ancient slings. And as it turns out, it has the ballistic force of a 45 caliber bullet. Now, does that change your paradigm of slingshot? Yeah, something's going on here. And what about accuracy? Well, we know that that these experienced slingers were amazingly accurate. In fact, later in, in, in the text of First and Second Samuel, when David is a, a, a man now and he has this, this, this band of brothers, this, this group of mighty men with him, in one phrase in the, in the scripture, it says these, a handful of these mighty men could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. In other words, they were very accurate with these things. So that if two or three of these boys were chasing you, they don't, they don't have to catch you before they'll kill you. They'll kill you with their slingshot. I mean, it's, they might as well be packing a 45 Colt on their hip as have these slingshots. And so here's Goliath contrasted with this. And he is this infantryman. He's used to this hand-to-hand style of combat. He's all decked out. And David comes along, and he is essentially on the spot changing the rules of combat without telling his opponent his opponent imagines that a guy's gonna come out with a sword and they're gonna get busy but David has no intentions of that and so he actually has superior technology to the sword and javelin that Goliath has plus on top of that he's filled with the Holy Spirit and so just as the case as we have seen that that Goliath and everyone has underestimated David's power, it could be that we've also misunderstood Goliath. Now, something about uh, Goliath. We know from the science of endocrinology that, that there's a reason why people get especially large. It's called gigantism. There's a medical term for it. And it's the result of a tumor on the pituitary gland deep in the brain that overproduces human growth hormone. And so these men and women who suffer from this condition tend to become giants. They get very, very large. You may remember Andre the Giant, you know, the professional wrestler, seven foot six, 450 pounds. He suffered from gigantism. The largest, uh, the tallest man in recorded history was a guy named Robert Wadlow. And Robert Wadlow was eight feet 11. So he got very, very big. Now, there are all kinds of other really negative consequences to this condition. And one of those is that in some cases, this tumor that grows in the pituitary can become so large that it begins to compress the optic nerves. And many of these cases historically uh, reveal that people who suffer this condition actually begin to lose their eyesight over time. And so now we see these circumstantial Points of interest from Goliath himself. And here's what we know. He's being led into the valley floor by an attendant, this shield bearer in front of him. He's being led almost like a preschooler across the street. And we wonder now with this other medical information what that might mean. And he's moving very slowly, very deliberately. Takes him an awful long time to figure out actually what's happening. In fact, he never really understands what's coming upon him. Here comes this young guy with a slingshot and he, he, he just can't process that very well. I wonder why. He says, you come to me that I may feed your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the fields. He said, am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And the fact of the matter is, David doesn't have sticks. He has a shepherd's staff and he has his sling. And that's it. Is it possible then that Goliath actually can't see him? Or he's seen double? And he is, he's having to be very deliberate. And that's why he says to David, come to me, you know, so we, I can get my hands on you because really I can't see you very well. And so the, the answer to these puzzles now begin to take some level of, of shape. And, and so is it possible that the first lesson that we learn from this story of David and Goliath is this, maybe the giants are not what they seem. maybe the obstacles in your life are not so insurmountable and depressing and overwhelming as you thought they first were could be now listen it's unlikely that any of us are gonna face a nine-foot giant (laughs) to overcome in order to pursue our dreams and find some balance in our lives but there are giants in our lives aren't there financial giants relational giants marriage giants work related issues and so it's good for us to know that God has provided this story for us to consider. Now, let me just give you some further background as we uh, get into this main outline, and that is this. The leading religious guy of the day, the, the, the prophet priest of the era, was a man named Samuel. And Samuel began to hear from God that he wanted to anoint a new king. Saul was the first king of Israel, and now God is ready to replace Saul. Saul. And so God speaks to Samuel and sends him to Bethlehem. And he's in Bethlehem and he finds there a man named Jesse. And Jesse is a man with eight sons. And Samuel believes that the next king will come from from Jesse's household. Do you have sons here? Yes, I have eight. Let me see them, Samuel says. And so one by one, beginning with the eldest they march Jesse's sons in front of him. And Jesse's so proud of those, those older boys, you know. They're strong, strapping men. And one by one, Samuel says, no, he's not the one. No, not him, not him. So he goes through seven of these sons, and he turns to Jesse and says, do you have any more sons? He says, well, yeah, I got one more. But he's, look, you don't want to see him. He's, he's, the, he's the squirt. He's a runt. He's out tending the sheep. He's, uh, he's really not available for this kind of service. And Samuel says, well, let me see him anyway. And so they, they call for, for David, and David comes in. He's this little bitty, snot-nosed kid, 11 or 12 years old. And he walks in the room, and Samuel goes, he's the one. He takes some oil and pours it all over David and anoints him. You're the next, puts his hands on him. You're the next, thus saith the Lord, you're the next king of Israel. <laughs> and you know what? you know what uh, Jesse does in response to that? He just goes, I don't know about that. You know, if you know, just, here's another preacher, you know, making a pastoral call. We don't know what he's up to. Maybe, maybe you know, he just uh, picked the last one because he didn't pick the, the fifth one. And so Jesse says to David, all right, now, now all this, this pastoral visit's over. Get back out there and get your job going. Get back, back, back to, the, to the flock. And so he dismisses it. And that leads me then to to help us understand one of the first obstacles that you will encounter on on the way to your dream. And that is the obstacle of delay. Write that down on your outline, if you will. Delay. No dream is fulfilled instantly. God gives you the dream on one day, but he doesn't fulfill it the very next day. There's always some kind of time delay, some time lapse, some waiting period. And in David's case, it's his own dad who holds him back. In verses 12 to 15, it says, Now David was the youngest of Jesse's eight sons. His three older brothers enlisted in the army, but David was held back. You see that? You might even circle that on your outline. David was held back to care for the sheep in Bethlehem. So the first barrier of your dream is this. There are going to be people who hold you back. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because there have been times in your life when you've been held back because of your age or because of your, your race or because of your gender or you weren't pretty enough or you weren't handsome enough or you weren't smart enough. So discrimination in any form is a barrier that all of us have to face at some point and we have to break through that. There are going to be people who will hold you back. Now here's the sad part. Sometimes the people who hold you back the most are those who love you the most people that you love the most. In this case, it was David's own father. But God has a plan for you. What you'll discover is that there will be other people in your life who also have a plan for you. You know, God loves you and your mother has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, your mother's plan for you may not be God's plan for you. And so you've got to, you've got to be ready for that. And you're going to see this delay in your life. Sometimes even people who love you will hold you back from the dream that God has given you. So, at some point in this standoff, Jesse sends David with a, with a sack lunch to the front lines so that his uh, older brothers could have some food. You know, they've been there for weeks, and so they have, the army has to be fed, and so he goes out there one day. And David discovers that everyone in the army, they're all embarrassed, they're all afraid, they're all terrorized, they're all traumatized, they're scared to death. And this becomes the second barrier you will face in finding and fulfilling your dreams. Not only will there be delay, but there will be second of all, and you'll want to write this down, there will be discouragement. Discouragement. You'll be, you'll be discouraged sometimes because everybody around you is discouraged and, and scared to death. Nobody thinks you can do it. Nobody has any hope. Nobody believes that you can take down this giant. Verses 8 to 10, each day Goliath would stand and shout at the ranks of Israel's army, why don't you come out here and fight? And he taunts them and he defies them and he says, this day I defy you. But when Saul and the Israelites heard this, listen to what happened. Everyone was deeply shaken and paralyzed with fear. So there it is. They're demoralized. They're gripped with anxiety. They're terrified. They're traumatized. They feel hopeless. They're paralyzed by the moment. Have you ever been in a situation where everybody around you said, well, this is hopeless. You know, this isn't going to work. You can't grow anything in this economy. You can't solve this problem. We're all going down the tubes. You ever been in that situation where it just felt that way? Let me tell you something. Now, it didn't cost you anything to get in here today, but here's some pretty good advice if you'll listen. Conventional wisdom is oftentimes wrong. When it comes to the dreams of God. Conventional wisdom is oftentimes wrong. And what you need when everybody around you is afraid and terrorized and paralyzed and frozen because of the circumstances, what you need is a fresh set of eyes. In this case, the crowd was wrong. Just because everybody says it's so doesn't make it so. In culture, this is just a good lesson for us. In culture, when cultural trends and, and popular opinion and majority vote tend to land on something and and something that was questionable before but now it is good and right and proper and so conventional wisdom says to now it's good right and proper listen that doesn't make it good right and proper at all doesn't change anything just because everybody's doing it the crowd is often wrong just because the crowd says it's true doesn't mean it's true so somebody had to challenge the status quo. We, why had everybody given up? Why had they gotten so discouraged from this one giant? And the answer to that question is because they were listening to the wrong voice. The only guy they listened to for weeks, 40 days, was this one guy, the giant. Verse 16, for 40 days, twice a day, morning and evening, the Philistine giant loudly berated the Israelite army. And so that's all they were hearing. So here's my question to you. Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? And what are they saying? Who who is it that's poo-pooing your dream or putting down your your sense of vision and purpose, saying it will never happen, telling you to forget it? Saying to you, who's told you you're the person to do that? Maybe one of the the best things that, that we could do in this culture right now is stop listening to talk radio and talk TV. Stop listening to that stuff. If you listen to it, you know what you're going to become? You're going to become the same spirit of the people who are talking. And most of the talking heads, not all, but most of the talking heads in our culture right now are negative. They're critical. They're fearful. They're bitter. And let me tell you something about those things. Those things are contagious. And they'll get on you and in you. And not only only is negativity contagious, but fear and discouragement is contagious. Sometimes you just need a fresh voice. You need a kid from the village with fresh eyes to show up with the bag lunches and say, who's this guy? Who's the the big dumb blind guy? Taunting the armies of the living God. This guy's nothing. We can take him down. It's a slam dunk. What's the matter with you guys? It's a 12-year-old talk. Verse 23 and 24, as David talked with his brothers on the front line, he saw Goliath start shouting his usual threats. Let me give you some advice. Don't hang out with fearful people. Don't hang out with cowards. You hang out with fearful people, you'll become fearful. You hang out with cowards, you'll become a coward. Don't hang out with bitter people, you'll become bitter. Angry people, negative people, the first barrier to your dream is delay. And the second dream buster is discouragement. Now, here's the third thing that David had to overcome, and that is, you want to write this down, it's disapproval. Disapproval. The reason why most people don't ever go after their dream is they're afraid of disapproval. They're afraid of rejection. In this case, David's own brothers question his motives. Now, we want everybody to like us, right? We do. We want that. But if you go after God's dream, let me guarantee you something. You go chasing after God's best plan for your life, you're going to discover naysayers and critics and people who misunderstand you and people who will attack you and judge you because they don't get it. In this case, David's own brother questions David's motivation. He treats his younger brother with disdain and disgust and demeans him and disregards him and belittles him. We find in verses 28 and 29 of this first Samuel chapter 17, the older brother says to David, he says, why are you even here? Why aren't you taking care of your scrawny little flock of sheep? You know, you're nothing but a cocky little brat. Why don't you just go back home? And David responds to him and said, now what have I done? He said, can I even ask a question? Do any of you even vaguely relate to this conversation? You've all heard about sibling rivalry. And if you have a sibling, you know what it is. Because it happens in every family. And there are, there are sometimes siblings of yours, a brother or sister, who can't imagine you accomplishing something that they've never imagined doing themselves. They, they think they know who you are, but they don't, know, they don't know who God is in your life. And so they form opinions, and sometimes it can become demeaning and demoralizing and filled with disapproval. Here's the sad truth. Sometimes it's your own family that doesn't want you to accomplish God's dream. They may be envious. They may be jealous. They may think they know you better than you know yourself. They know your weaknesses. They're embarrassed if you succeed and and achieve at a level that they haven't managed to do and they end up resenting you for it. Sibling rivalry often leads to resentment. And did you know that Jesus even had to deal with this? You know that Jesus' mother Mary was a virgin when he was born. Born of the Virgin Mary. Mary. But as soon as that boy was born, listen, that whole virgin thing, that was over. Joseph, Joseph was, had been patient enough. And that was that. And they started making other babies. And so Jesus had a number of half-brothers and half-sisters. And so they all grew up together. Now, can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your sibling? One interesting thing is that none of Jesus' half-brothers or sisters accepted him as Lord and Savior until after the resurrection. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting. And we've got to give him a little grace because you wouldn't want him as your brother either. You know, you're walking along with your brother and your brother says, oh, and by the way, I'm God. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What does that make you want to do? It just makes you want to, you know, punch him. (laughs) It's not going to work. I mean, you're literally growing up beside, you're, sleep, you're sleeping every night with Mr. Perfect. You know, and some, some fight breaks out in the house because there's a bunch of kids, there's a bunch of noise, and the, Mary walks in, what's going on in here? And, the, and someone says, Jesus started it. And Mary goes, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Another time, you know, one of the brothers said, He lied. And Mary goes, I doubt it. It's, it's not his style. That's not what he does. How would you like to have a brother who's always right? That's a hard thing to deal with. But even Jesus had to deal with sibling rivalry because a brother or sister will always say, who do you think you are? What do you mean you have a big dream? You're never going to get there. I'll never forget when we pursued this current facility which was a vacated car dealership at the time, our campus here at church. I've told you this in the beginning as an illustration of this this series and I just want to rehearse it. And people began to talk around town. You know, who's, there's this little church in a cornfield, and they're going to buy this big, this big vacated car lot. Who do they think they are? What, what's going on? Those people at Union Chapel, you know, a few hundred people, you know, making this big deal. I remember having to address it in a service because people were starting to wonder. They were getting discouraged about it. You know, people keep asking, my friends who don't come to our church, they keep asking You guys are crazy. You'll never be able to develop that property into a a church. That's nuts. Who do you think you are? People were pushing me on it. And I had to finally address it. But see, people were asking the wrong question. People kept asking us, Who do you think you are? It was the wrong question. The right question is, Who do we think our God is? That's the right question because the size of your dream should match the size of your God. If you've got a tiny little puny God who can't do anything and he sits up in heaven somewhere and doesn't pay any attention to you, then you should have a tiny little puny dream for your life. But if you've got a big God, almighty God, who's invested intimately and personally in your life and has a dynamic plan and destiny for you, then you ought to have big dreams and think big thoughts and have an imagination that will take you to a place of influence for his glory. And so we just had to change the question, had to remind folks, we're not asking ourselves who we think we are, we're just asking who do we think our God is. And that's the right way to ask it. When God gives you a dream that other people tell you you should be afraid to attempt or afraid to accomplish or even step out and try, if you take that dream and you go for it, listen, here's what I can promise you, you'll be misjudged, you'll be misaligned, you'll be, you'll be misinterpreted, you'll be misunderstood, you'll be misunderstood you have to decide what matters more to you you have to decide what matters more to you the approval of other people or the approval of God you have to come to a place in your life where you have to decide whether you are pursuing the approval of of men or you are pursuing in your life the approval of God something that I did a long long time ago is I decided with my wife that it was going to be more important for us to to have God's approval than to have anyone, else, anyone else's approval. I'll just say it this way. It's not my job. It's not my business. It's not my concern what anybody thinks about me. It, just, it, doesn't, it shouldn't register to me or to you what anybody thinks about me. The only person that we should concern ourselves about what they think about us is God. God. We should play our lives to an audience of one. And I'm just telling you, if you'll, appro- if you'll get God's approval, you'll live your life approving uh, of, his, of his presence in your life and his approving of yours, then things will work out. You, because you have God with you. God is with you. <laughs> and that's, a, that's what you want. By the way, we, we learned just a, a little piece of this David learned that day when he was inquiring about about Goliath, what the reward would be for the person who fought and beat him, because Saul had promised great riches. So, you, so you immediately become become rich. The second thing is you get to marry the king's daughter, and and that's that's a connection. You know, that's hooked up right there. You 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 are connected now uh, with royalty. That's a good position in life. And then the third thing is that you would become exempt from taxes for the rest of your life. Now just pause and think about that for just a second. <laughs> exempt from taxes. You go, you go to register your car, no taxes there. You, you, uh, it comes uh, property tax season, no taxes there. It's income tax season, no income tax. The IRS, they don't even have your number, your name. You're exempt for life. You're not even in the system. There are no deductions. There's, there's no calculation. You get it all. No taxes for any reason. <laughs> that, how, that's a motivation right there just to go out and take on the guy. As is, that's, that's amazing. But then there's this fourth dream buster David had to face even before he faced Goliath. We know, we know that there, there's delay and there's disappointment and there's this discouragement. But the fourth thing is doubt. Doubt. Write that down. Because the questions will come to you in the pursuit of your dream. Am I capable of this? And I, Am I up to this task? Can I actually do what God is actually telling me to do? And, and then there are all these people around you who tell you you can't. So David goes... To King Saul, and here's the conversation between the two. Verse 32 and 33. David goes up to Saul and he says, Look, don't worry about a thing. I'll fight this Philistine. Your worries are over, King. (laughs) He's 13 years old. I'll take him on. Yeah. Now let me just say, pause right there just for a second. Sometimes confidence in God can often be misinterpreted as cockiness by other people. I mean, Saul looks at this little 13-year-old guy, and he's just going, you have no idea what you're talking about. You are in so far over your head, you don't even know. You cocky little thing. You know, first, his brother says, you're nothing but a cocky little brat. And now King Saul says to him, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight against this Philistine. You're only a boy. He's been a professional warrior all of his life. And so that expert is saying you can't do it. And that's enough to make you start doubting yourself. I I say about experts what I say about conventional wisdom. Let's go back to that point. The experts are often wrong. Not only is conventional wisdom often wrong, but the experts are often wrong. I can see that's a hard one for you. Let me give you a few examples from my own story. When we relocated our worship services from the Cornfield Church, we went to Delta High School and used their auditorium there. And we were there for almost five years. And so we we had to get permission. I actually went to my bishop, my first bishop, 30 years ago. And I said to Bishop Alton, who was an an elderly, godly, seasoned man of God. You know, he's he's the elder. He's the wise one. And so I sat down with Bishop Alton. And I was 26 years old, 27, 28 years old, something like that. And I sat down with Bishop, Bishop Alton. I told him our story. I was very enthusiastic. You know, we're, we're going to move the worship services to this rented facility. We don't know how long we get to stay there. They're not sure we, they like the idea of us being there. So we're, we're going to go. And we're not sure, what, what, how, if anything, except, you know, we're going to leave a perfectly good building that's been there for 100 years. We're going to relocate to some uncertain place. <laughs> Woohoo! And this is what Bishop Alton said to me, and I quote, you can do it, but you're likely to fail. He said, I've only known one church in my life that left a perfectly good building to relocate to rented facilities, and they eventually ceased to exist as a church. So let me just paraphrase that. The bishop, the the expert said to me, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And if you do that, you'll never be heard from again that's it. When we, when we went from the high school to this location, and, and this facility, which is now our church campus, this building wasn't here at all. We didn't even own the property that this building sits on, but we had the 14 acres originally where the main building sits. They, the, it was the shell of a building, and, and it had been vacated for over a year and a half, two years. You know, the, see, the roof was leaking. The windows were busted out. There's volunteer trees growing in a parking lot. It's just, it's a, you know, it's a vacant lot, and it's a mess, vandalism, paint everywhere. It's just, it's like someone's just destroyed the place, and that's, that's what we were facing, and in order for us to relocate the church from one original permanent location to a new permanent location, you have to have the permission in our denomination from a district, district committee called the District Committee of Church Location and Building, and this just keeps, keeps order, you know, in the, in the. Location of these churches. So we sat down with this group of committee members of church location and building. I told them this story. I was very excited. We're going to move from the high school and we're going to move into this car lot. And, you know, and I brought them through and walked them through. And I said, Now imagine this being that. And, and, and look at this oil pit's pit. going to be a classroom, you know, and things like that. And this is what the chairman of the committee said to me. And I quote, Trying to re- renovate an old dilapidated car lot is a crazy idea. We will give you permission to relocate, but it will never work. (laughs) Then we were under construction, and and our current sanctuary was originally under construction. And I was in there one afternoon, and a prominent Christian businessman in our community, not associated with our church, walked into the sanctuary one afternoon, and he said to me, and I quote, You'll never fill a room this size in Muncie, Indiana. And he was older, and I was about 34 years old at the time, and he treated me in a very patronizing way. And friends, this is, you know, after a sequence like that, this is where doubt starts to come in. You go, well, maybe this isn't the right thing to do. Maybe, maybe it can't be done, and maybe I'm not the right person to do it and, and to lead this thing. And, I, and, so, and so you begin to wonder. But listen, how do you defeat the giants that are keeping you from being the man that God wants you to be? How do you... Defeat the fears that are keeping you from being the woman that God has called you to be. To be a person of great faith. To be a person who dreams big dreams and lives a great life. How do you work to overcome those giants? And let me just give you a few thoughts about that. Here's the first thing. You want to write this down. First of all, remember how God has helped me in the past. I remember how God has helped me in the, the past. The first thing you do to face the giants and fulfill your dreams is you remember. You recall the confidence that comes when I recall, when I recollect, when I remember those times when I thought I wouldn't make it, and I made it. And those times when I thought it was the end of it, but it wasn't the end. And that I'd reached the bottom and that there was no way to climb out, but somehow, with God's grace, you climbed out. And I remember that. And those times when you just thought, I'm all alone, no one else understands, no one else is with me, no one else gets it. And as it turns out, you weren't alone. God was with you. You remember how God has helped you in those little things. And now you can trust Him as you remember God's faithfulness in a bigger thing. And you, you remember that God not only loved you yesterday and was faithful to you yesterday, but He's good today and He'll be faithful tomorrow. He's the same God. His love doesn't change just because it's a different day. He's a consistent God. And you remember those things. Verse 36 David said, in protecting my sheep as a shepherd, I've killed both a lion and a bear. The Lord who delivered me from the teeth of that lion, the claws of that bear, will surely now deliver me from this Philistine too. By the way, me helping you understand that 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 sling and that rock has the ballistic equivalent of a forty-five caliber bullet, that helps you understand how this boy took care of a lion and a bear. Otherwise, how did you figure that one out? he must have got lucky that day a lion are you kidding 10 year old boy and a lion and a bear how does he pull that off he has his colt 45 (laughs) slung across his hip that's how he does it so i remember how god's helped me in the past here's the second thing i use the tools that god has given me now i use the tools that god has given me right now i don't wait for something that i don't have If I don't have enough money, education, connections, opportunities. Listen, some people are just waiting for something to happen. Can I just challenge you? Don't wait for your ship to come in. Swim out to the thing. Swim out there. If you wait for it to come in, you're going to be waiting a long, long time. And I've watched people wait their whole lives. David goes to see Saul and says, If you're going to fight this guy, you may as well use my armor. How ridiculous is that? And Saul tries to put his armor on David and Saul's a big guy's the biggest guy in town heavy armor he puts it on David you know and you can just see him kinda clunking around and it doesn't work and David takes it off he said I'm not used to this this isn't this isn't the best the best uh, the best strategy the best tools for my my dream and so he says I'm gonna just use what God's given me now listen there are gonna be some people who oppose you in your dream and part of their opposition is going to be, okay, you can, you can try to pursue that dream, but you've got to do it this way. You've got to do it the way I did it. And if you do it the way I did it, then you've got a chance for it working. But, you, but the way you're thinking about it, that's not going to work at all. But you've got to just shake that off. I see this Saul's armor syndrome in businesses and ministries all the time. This happens in local churches when you, when you, try, to, when you try to see the Davids in your midst and you say, look... I want to recognize the skill and the capacity and the giftedness and the talent and the sense of call that David has, and I want to honor that. And so I bless David to do it the way God's calling him to do it. That's what it means to champion the next generation. And I know that that's not been popular with some of you, some of the changes we've made and all of that. And I I get it. I understand that. But here's what we're doing. What we're doing is modeling for these young guys today what it looks like to be gracious and open-handed and open-hearted toward them because in 20 years, watch this, in 20 years, because it all comes around, doesn't it? This will be our revenge. In 20 years, <laughs> in 20 years they're gonna, there's going to be another generation of kids saying to these squirts today, no, that's not how you do it. This is the, this is the best way to do it. And, then they'll have, and what we're doing for them right now is we're modeling for them what grace looks like and what encouragement looks like. And not keeping them from their dreams, but encouraging them to chase after God's vision for their lives. And they'll, we'll model for them what it looks like so when it's their turn, they'll know what to do. That's how you pass it on. See, it's incumbent upon the older to be gracious enough to accommodate the younger. This is the call of God. And nobody said it was easy, did they? But this is, what, this is what we do and why we do it. And this is the principle. Often try, people try to load some things on you that are just too heavy for you. But Ecclesiastes 11.4 says, If you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get anything done. Yeah. And so we're ending these 50 days of transformation. And we're, we're trying to overcome whatever the barriers are that keep us from God's best. Here's the third thing that we do in order to overcome these, these giants. And the third thing is this. You have to ignore the dream busters. You have to ignore the dream busters. It's interesting to me that as David's going to take on this giant, everybody else is scared to death. He didn't get encouragement from anybody. His dad didn't encourage him. His mother didn't encourage him. His brothers didn't encourage him. The king doesn't encourage him. None of the members of the army encourage him. Nobody's with him. So what did he do? He had to encourage himself. Let me give you one of the most practical, functional, practical, functional, life-applicable Functional, practical verses of scripture that is in the entire Bible. This is so, so rubber on the pavement, feet on the dirt kind of scripture that you'll ever hear. And it's in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. And it simply says, When others were speaking against him, David encouraged himself in the Lord. When everybody else said, What are you doing? He, he encouraged himself in the Lord. And so my question to you is, do you do that? Do you encourage yourself in the Lord? And you have to learn to encourage yourself because sometimes nobody else is going to be there to encourage you. So you've got to get in tight with God and you've got you've to talk to God and, and spend time with God so that you're encouraged and approved with Him. Now listen, this is more than positive thinking. This is more than just a, a good attitude encouraging yourself in the Lord Well, okay the, listen to me when it comes down to being a, a positive person or a negative person then you know be positive I'm for that I'm for positive thinking but there are times in our lives problems in life that are so significant giants that are so big that all the positive thinking in the world isn't going to make a dent in how you're feeling and what you're facing and so you have to encourage yourself in the Lord. You have to build your faith. You have to build your confidence. You have to build your trust in God. And you do that by interaction with God and fellowship with God. And so that's what David, David did when no one else would give him the encouragement he needed. So ignore the dream busters and get your encouragement from God. Now here's the last thing. The fourth thing David did is I expect God to help me for his glory. I expect God to help me for his glory. Now, this is the faith factor. The faith factor. I love what David says to Goliath as he runs on the battlefield. David runs onto the battlefield shouting, and he says this. David shouted to Goliath, You come at me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Today the Lord will conquer you. You hear that phrase? Today the Lord will conquer you. And the whole world will know that there is a God. And everyone will know that the Lord doesn't need weapons to rescue His people. It is His battle, not ours. It is His battle, not ours. And the Lord will give you to us. Let me ask you this. What are you expecting God to do in your life? What are you expecting God to do through your life? Almost to the degree that you expect God to do something is the degree to which God will actually do it. Because God expects us to live by faith. To trust Him. The Bible says that according to your faith, it will be done unto you. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. The Bible says that whatever is not of faith is sin. Do Do you note a trend? You don't have to be the smartest person. You don't have to be the best looking. You don't have to be the wealthiest person. But we all have the opportunity to choose to trust in God to place our faith in Him and our confident hope in Him. Let me, uh, let me finish with this. Many years ago now, when Beth and I were called by officials in our denomination that we would be sent to Muncie, Indiana, to this area, let me tell you what we did. We knelt down by our bed one day and we prayed before moving to Muncie and our prayer was something like this God we want to give you our best if you'll go with us here we are we're going to to just recommit our lives to you and what we were saying what we meant is that we will do anything anytime anywhere in faith even when it doesn't make sense we will do it if you ask us to, and God heard our prayer, friends. I, as a teenager, as a boy growing up, I would have never have imagined that I get to do what I do. It wouldn't have it never even came into my mind. I mean, I'm a I'm a country boy with a slingshot. Union Chapel's twice as big, and when you consider all of our partner church, we're three times as big or four times as big as my hometown. I never dreamed that I'd get to do what I do. When, when I, I got very serious in my relationship with Beth, and I was also very serious about a developing sense of call to do full-time ministry, Beth had family, Roman Catholic family. She had family and she had friends. And they would say things to her like, you don't, you don't want him, especially if he's going to do what he's talking about doing. Heck, on the night I proposed marriage to Beth, even God tried to warn her not to marry me. I can tell you that story. Her family, her friends, even God said, hmm, watch out for that guy. But beginning on that night, when I proposed marriage to her, and until this moment, she has steadfastly maintained a willing heart and a faithful posture. Many times over the years she's used the same phrase with me and she doesn't even know she does it. But I've marked it. There's been five or six times in our marriage when we were at a crossroads, we were at a decision point and she uses the same phrase and I'll tell you what it is. And I quote, Whatever you think God is asking us to do, I'm with you. I've often thought how how would history be different if my wife had said no? What if she had been afraid? What if she'd been scared? So much so that she couldn't go on. She was paralyzed by it. And she said, let's don't do it. What if she'd said, let's play it safe? What if she'd said, I can't, I can't live in this apartment. There, you know, there's too many bugs in here. What if she'd said, "I, I can't, I can't live on this little salary anymore. I mean, we're just, you know, it's just, it's too, too much. Or what if she said, please don't take such big risks. Let's play it safe for a while. or Let's just settle here for a little bit and let's not not try anything crazy. I don't know how different the world would be, but I imagine that it's likely that there would probably be hundreds, maybe thousands of people who wouldn't be going to heaven now if my wife hadn't said yes my point is that we have no idea how much our unbelief can be limiting to somebody else. So I ask you today, is your unbelief limiting your wife? Is it limiting your husband? Is your lack of faith and trust and confidence in God, is it holding your children back? When I was 19 years old and I was contemplating my future in ministry, I went home one afternoon after my summer job in college and my mother walked up to me and she said, I need to tell you something, Greg. She said, today in prayer, God told me that I had to give you away. And then through her tears that day, she, she, she said, you know I don't want you to do what you're thinking about doing. I'm, I've not been in favor of it. But she said, you don't belong to me anymore. You belong to God. And so she said, today in prayer, God gave me the grace to open my hands and let you go. I said, that's good, Mom. That's good, Mom. That's good for you. Because as you know, I was going anyway. (laughs) So good for you. And thank you for your support. And she's been supportive every day, all along the way, every day. My wife often calls my mother for encouragement. And it's a great thing. So listen, don't be a Jesse. Don't hold them back when God has a great dream for their life. It's not your dream for them, it's God's dream for them. So you need to say, I'm not going to let anybody else's unbelief hold me back from God's best in my life. And I'm not going to let my unbelief hold anybody else back from God's best in my life and we see this beautifully played out in the life of David so he who has an ear let him hear these important truths well as is our custom let's pray for just a moment while you're in an attitude of prayer this morning I know there are a lot of things in your life you don't have control over for example you didn't choose your natural talent you didn't choose when you'd be born you didn't choose who you'd be You didn't choose your race, your gender, your talent. But right now, every one of us, while we didn't have choices in all of those areas, we do have a choice about whether or not we're going to trust God. And it's that faith factor that will defeat the giants of delay and discouragement and disapproval and doubt. And if you'll say yes to God, He will take you on the adventure of your life. And it doesn't really matter what's happened in your past. It doesn't really matter what what has transpired up to this particular moment because God will meet you right here, right now, and take you into an adventurous future of influence and joy. Well, let me give you the words for this prayer. You, You say them in your mind and heart. Will you do that? Dear God you've helped me many times in the past. You've helped me through things I I thought I'd never get out of, but you helped me. And if you helped me in the past, I know you're going to help me in the future. So help me to draw confidence from that. And even when people discourage me or disapprove of me or even when people misunderstand me, help me to use the tools that you've given me right now. Not to wait for a perfect time plan, a perfect tool, but to use the slingshot and stones that I have right now. Help me not to wear somebody else's armor, but just to go in your strength. Lord, help me to ignore the dream busters and help me start every day with a time alone with you so that I can encourage myself. Because I have you, I don't need the encouragement of other people because I'm encouraging myself in the Lord and spending time with you. So help me, God, to expect you to help me. And Lord, do it for your glory so the whole world will know that there is a God. And everyone will know that the Lord doesn't need weapons to rescue his people. And Lord, I've, to, I've been tired because I, I've been trying to fight battles as if they're mine, but it's your battle. So help me to rest, trust you to give me the victory. So Jesus Christ, I invite you into every area of my life, my spiritual life, physical life, mental life, emotional health, my relational life, my financial life, my work life. I want you to run every area of my life. I want you to be the manager and the Lord from this day forward. And I thank you in advance that the giants will fall and the dreams will come true. And I pray this in your name. And everyone said